Go ahead and have a seat, church. Welcome to NBC, wherever you're joining us from today. Uh, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and get your Bible app or Bible open. Um, we're going to be talking about sex today, and uh, as Mark has said. So um, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that this is not the kind of content you are going to go, boy, I, you know, I'm so tired of the church talking about this. Um, you're, you're going to... <laughs> You're going to walk out of here on the one hand saying, I'm not sure I've ever heard that uh, quite put that way in church. And on the other hand, you're going to go, boy, you know, uh, if you follow uh, the, the part of this that is about doing the word and not just hearing it, uh, it will bless your marriage in untold amazing ways. Um, I'm going to begin by taking you back to about 19, I'm going to guess 83 or so. Uh, some of you were not born then. That's fine. Uh, some of you were in your, in your 90s then. That's fine. Right now, we are going to take a time back. We went to a restaurant called Fiddler's Three. I don't even know if those exist anymore. I'm guessing they don't. That one barely existed at the time. We sat down, and, and I should have known something was up because my dad is not prone to fits of uh, spontaneous spending, to put it mildly. He invited me. He said, hey, son, want to go to the batting cages and go get a piece of pie afterwards? I said, yeah, sure, dad. We went to the batting cages, and we, we took our cuts, and I just, you know, normally it's kind of you do a couple rounds, and we are out. Uh, and okay, just cost, cost money, and, and uh, so you just want to get your cuts in, and then we're out. But he let me just kind of keep hitting. And I should have known this was going to go somewhere. Then he took me out afterwards. We sat down to uh, have our infamous pie and coffee. I remember I got a big slice of lemon meringue that night. Uh, I did not drink coffee. I think I had lemonade and lemon pie. That's what an eight-year-old, nine-year-old boy does. And so after a while, we kind of did the father-son thing, and I remember having a good time, and then this happened. This is where you hear the record scratch, right? He looks at me across the table, and he says, son, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, do you know how babies are made? Now, I'd heard about these kinds of conversations from my friends, right, that they had, they'd had with their parents, so I could kind of see where this was going to go. So immediately panic began to set in, and I just said, yeah, I do. I do, Dad. Uh, you know, no problem. Check. You know, that's what I was thinking. I did not want to have that conversation with him right there. But he goes, well, why don't you tell me how you think babies are made? And, of course, I'm looking around the restaurant like, you sure you want to do this kind of discussion right here in this place? And I said, well, okay, sure, Dad. When a man and a woman fall in love and they kiss, then his spit goes down her throat into her stomach and creates a baby. And then she has the baby. And uh, I actually said to him that it, it came out of a different place than, 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 than where it actually comes out of at the same time, too. And so my dad looks at me, and I don't know how he held it together. He's kind of like, not exactly, son. And he went on to explain to me, the wonders of sex. And I remember thinking how disgusting that sounded to me, uh, how horrifying it was at the moment. But he rem I remember him also telling me that at some point in my life, I was going to learn that it was not quite as disgusting as I thought at the moment. He was right. And most of us have traveled some journey with the issue of sex, whether it was from that moment where we first realized what we thought was how babies were made, all the way to the world that we're living in today. Now, fast forward from 1983 and the way that society was then 
the way that sex was taught about, talked about, taught in school, in sex ed programs, et cetera, et cetera, up until the way that is done today, here in 2021. I think it's reasonable to say there's been a change. Uh, not a small change. And that's been led by what you might call, I'm going to use a big word here, epistemology. How we know what we know, basically. That's the study of how we know what we know. And we've gone from a very uh, family-based kind of system for teaching those things to one in which we follow the personal conscience that we have, the way that we feel like is right, and mixed with the collective conscience of the broader secular culture in which we live, okay? Conscience. Now, there's a lot of problems with that. The the conscience is a very tricky thing. The prophet Jeremiah would say, heart is deceitful above all things. So we say follow our hearts. And guess what? We follow what's deceitful above all things. Rather than finding what it might be that the one who created sex itself, the way that our particular species uh, procreates, even the nature of things, as Paul will refer to it in the New Testament, that, that that has something to it. If there was somebody that created that and it began in such a way and our very existence is sustained by that particular process, then, then let's go to that source if it's accessible to us to find out what is this about? What is the meaning of it? How do we damage each other with it? How do we have abundance with it? How ought we to do this whole thing? How do we think about it? How do we teach about it? What do we feel about it? All of those things should be guided more by the, I'll say, the thermometer than the thermostat. Here's what I mean. A thermostat is uh, something, you know, and this is those of you who are married, uh, you know, or know that you will fight over the thermostat on a semi-regular basis, especially uh, once you get to the 40, your 40s or so, okay? And he's fatter and, and, and other bodily changes are going on in the house 40s, 50s, stuff like that, you really start fighting over the thermostat, okay? And often one person always thinks it's sweltering hot while the other person thinks it's cold. Right now and throughout the morning, I will see some of you putting on like little wraps during my sermon and others of you fanning yourselves, okay? Because there's a, a thermostat in here that kicks on when things hit a certain pace. And all we're trying to do is to get, say, okay, what's a reasonable bandwidth of temperature for which somebody can actually reasonably enjoy themselves in here? But we understand that people are all over the place. Some people are fat, some people are thin, some people are different ages, some people are in menopause, some people are not. Some people are this and that and whatever, right? Thermostat. Okay, a thermostat doesn't tell you what temperature it is. It tells you, basically, you tell it when you think it's going to be hot. You set the the measurements, right? Anything above this is too hot or I don't want to pay the energy bill. Uh, anything below this is too cold, and I don't want to pay the energy bill, right? So if I go over to some of your houses in the summer, it'll be set at like 82, and because you don't want to make the energy payments, right? Uh, if I go over to some of your houses in the winter, it'll be set at like 62, okay? And that's because you don't want to pay the energy bill. Now, am I to take from that that by your definition, by nature, Uh, That means that it is objectively too cold or too hot. No, all it says is this is what is cold or hot to you. 
This is what you, what temperature you're willing to put up with in your house for all of the different kind of exchanges that you go through in your mind. A thermometer tells me exactly what temperature it happens to be without caring much if it's hot or cold, okay? Ethics is best done with a thermometer, not a thermostat. When I got a car that had dual climate control, oh, car I drive every day has no air conditioning or heat in it. It is what it is. That's one thermostat. Other cars, like the one my wife drives, has dual climate control. In fact, I'm not even sure you might even be able to zone the back, which means the driver can have it their temperature, they can have it their temperature, everybody's happy. Okay, well, the problem with that is when it comes down to a subject like this, if somebody's saying this is what it is and this is what it is, and then the, the person who actually can say, no, it's actually 72 degrees, there's the thermometer, isn't in the car, or if your car has no sense of what temperature it actually is in the car, then it can't adjust, okay? That's where we are. We're on thermostat with this stuff. We think our conscience will be our guide. The problem with that is that your conscience and my conscience are different. What might bother me to do to somebody, it doesn't bother you at all. Is everybody's conscience equally valid? Hitler had a conscience, right? Didn't seem to bother him. But he let his conscience be his guide. So is that really the way that we want to do sexual ethics in the world? Or how about this one? The majority view. So if God says to us, this is the right path, this is my will, do we think that if, if we just get enough people to say, no, it's not that, that he'll just say, oh, you know what, you're right, I'll move it from here over here. I'll declare it the right path if we can get enough people to think that. He's not a politician. He's God, right? So he's standing there in heaven saying, no, I'm telling you what the truth is. It's up to you to decide if you're going to follow and walk in my path or if you're going to do, as was said of the people in the times of the judges, you're going to do what is good and right in your own eyes. And that is not a compliment in the book of Judges. That is a harbinger of disaster coming in the book of Judges. It will say everyone did what was good and right in their own eyes, and then the next story that's told is one of sudden ethical disaster. Okay? Now, we are fully capable of doing terrible things with a completely clean conscience. It's possible. In fact, the Bible even talks about that. People who act in certain ways and their consciences are seared as with a hot iron. Like you can get to a point where your conscience no longer is of any value or use. Now that's different. Your conscience, okay, when it's led by the Holy Spirit, then what you're really doing is following the guidance and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is consistent with what Scripture has revealed. And with the attitude, the essence, and the teachings of Jesus, the Son of God. So we're going to try and take a, a, a step forward here on two very delicate subjects. We're going to do sex today. We're doing money next week on Senior Sunday when all of our graduating seniors are going to kind of, let's say, walk the plank. That's not the phrase I'm looking for. What is it? Walk the threshold thing. Um, and and uh, we're going we're gonna to applaud them and, and give them a little inspirational talk uh, 
regarding money for the forthcoming thing, but there's a lot in there for all of us because we all know only young people make mistakes with money. Adults never do. So, um, let me, let me, I heard somebody amen, don't do that. <laughs> all right. Um, I want you to imagine with me then as we head uh, toward 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Think about all of the different societal problems, culture, wars, sins, etc. that could be transformed overnight. Overnight. If people woke up one morning and decided that they would live biblically in their sexuality. It's staggering, actually. There are 11,000 sex trafficking victims in our county alone. Prostitution, gone. Pornography, gone. Marriages broken or hurt by adultery, gone. Relationships broken by people cheating, gone. Crimes of passion, gone. One heck of a dent would be put in poverty because more children would be growing up with two parents in the house. Sexual assault, gone. Harassment, gone. Even more grievous sins that we commit toward one another, gone. In all likelihood, abortion wouldn't be an issue anymore. STDs likely would not exist. Extortion, blackmail, they would decrease. National politics would be transformed for lack of scandal and the ability to weaponize sexual sin. I mean, the implica- I could go on for a while. The implications of it are absolutely staggering. But we look at the world that we've created through living outside the will of God with our sexuality as though we're creating in the process some sort of ideal. I mean, what a, what, a, what a staggering work of fiction we're writing with that narrative, as opposed to realizing, you know what, maybe we don't do as good of a job as we like to think with this whole thing. Maybe our desires have run amok on us. Maybe our desire to be, quote, unquote, free has actually led us into a slavery that's beyond our ability to be emancipated from on our own. We as a society are so confused about sex. So what shall we do? Well, we're going to go back to Scripture, and we'll start with this little idea. The eternal is greater than the latest. The eternal is greater than the latest. Now, sex is both more biblically and less than we make of it. It is more than a casual way of fulfilling our desires. It is less than some sort of form of identity. We are more than who we are attracted to. However, Let's not throw rocks at the culture. We've been part of the confusion as well. So if you can bear with me a little bit longer, we're going to take a nerdy trip briefly through church history. I think this is important for people who've never heard this before to understand how it is that we got to where we got to and how the church has helped and hurt along the way. All right, so you start out with kind of the biblical view of sex, which is that sex is a beautiful God-honoring thing when it's done within the covenant of marriage by a man and a woman. Okay, it's also the way that he chose for procreation. He could have said, done something completely boring as a way of reproduction. He could have said, you know what, blink twice, and out comes a baby, right? But he didn't do that. He picked something that is far more pleasurable uh, to do that with because he enjoys our enjoyment, right? So we'll read uh, some Proverbs very shortly where the Bible talks in very 
grand terms about the beauty of sex. The Song of Solomon, contrary to popular belief, is not fundamentally a narrative story about Jesus and the church. It's a story about two lovers, and it's a, an erotic poem, really, is what it is. It's what, it, it's what uh, when the gospel is lived out, essentially, in the romantic side of a relationship, what it looks like, okay? So you have the Bible, that ends, uh, the, the narrative part of the Bible ends, say, with the closing of the book of Revelation. Uh, and then uh, forward you go, first century, second century, third century, you get to the late 300s, early 400s, things start to get interesting. Augustine and Jerome, two guys, they are uh, the, probably the two most influential early church fathers. Augustine had been converted out of a thoroughly pagan background where that was just rife with sexual sin. So he's converted and becomes a very influential early church father. But his old desires continue to haunt him. Uh, He began to, in his writings, connect the transmission of sin with the act of intercourse itself and proclaim that sex for any purpose other than conceiving is a sin. That's carried on uh, even today in some churches, okay? He came to regret that God had created sex at all. His contemporary, Jerome, went a lot further. He was plagued by sexual fantasies to the point that he says in his writings that he often found himself surrounded by bands of dancing girls. So he says, I got to get it under control. What can I do? So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get out the manuscripts of the Bible. I'm going to translate the whole thing out of Hebrew into Latin. So he goes down to his basement and basically stays there for years, just working on what becomes the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible. But that was fundamentally a way of escape for him from what he was doing. Now, having been in seminary, I will tell you, nothing is a cold shower like studying Hebrew. It is awful, okay? So he decides, I'm going to go do that as a way because I would rather, uh, you know, uh, sublimate myself than... And, and, and do that than to disobey and dishonor God. Okay, but to husbands then, Jerome will declare, anyone who is too passionate a lover with his own wife is himself an adulterer. Hmm. Now, in the succeeding centuries, similar to the time around the time of Jesus when the Pharisees have piled law upon law upon law upon law, they're not just following uh, the law of Moses anymore. They're heaping law upon law upon law, right? Well, how do I make sure that nobody crosses this fence? Why well, build a fence outside that fence? Well, how do you make sure that he doesn't get past evidence? Well, I'm going to build another one over here. Next thing you know, you got law upon law upon law upon law. And based on Augustine and Jerome particularly, they rewrite kind of a sequence of laws, and the church then comes to where it forbids sex on Thursdays, which they say is the day of Christ's arrest. So how can you possibly have sex on Thursdays, you, you hot and bothered people? Knock it off. The day of Christ's arrest, they said, was Thursday. On Fridays, that was the day of his death. Stop it. You can't have sex on Fridays. Saturdays, in honor of the Blessed Virgin. Stop it. On Sundays, in honor of the departed saints. Knock it off. Wednesdays sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and the feast days in the days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity, as defined in the law of Moses. So the list escalates until... As the historian John Boswell has estimated, out of 365 days in a year, 44 were left that you were allowed to have sex on by the church. 44. And that stays the case all the way until the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther did us a solid. 
he came in and he said, what are we doing? Like, where did this come from? Because his old emphasis on sola scriptura, go back to the Bible. What does the Bible actually say? Well, the Bible didn't say anything like that. So he says, you know, we got to get away from that, all right? So he helps kind of bring things back around, but he brings it back. And as all those fences were removed, guess what? They start building them again. So after Luther, it turns into uh, the Spanish priests that then uh, they issue all sorts of new edicts saying, be wary of the passion that is inspired by chili peppers. Assuming they think that they're aphrodisiacs. A few preached sermons against the indulgence in a food that they said was almost as hot as the devil's brimstone itself. It is the soup of the devil. I love it personally. They said, uh, so, so as they do it, ironically, the chili uh, booms in popularity. That's <laughs> often the case, right? Priests say, don't do it or you're going to have lots of sex. People are going to go eat it, right? So that's basically what happens, right? So post-Luther, it seems the church begins to say less then. Once you get past these, this set of priests, the church just kind of stops talking about it. Other than to say, don't do it until you're married and homosexuality is wrong. Those are the two things that the church says for the next, say, uh, 200 years. But that approach really did surrender the pulpit to the culture on sex, except for those two subjects. And because they're talking about those subjects lacked a proper theological foundation and, I would say, some, some creativity or something compelling in their presentation of it, it was too often rooted in apologetics that were, that were fairly fragile, like... Um, you know, if you have sex before marriage, you could get pregnant. Well, you can get pregnant after marriage too. Um, or get AIDS, right? Well, okay, you're right. But then, then you have something like a condom come along and that changes the game. Now you don't have any argument anymore, right? Because you didn't root it in the gospel where it should have been. It should have been rooted in what Paul will say to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that our bodies are not our own, that they were bought with a price, Therefore, glorify God with your body. That is a much more biblical and much more compelling argument to help people understand that part of the reason that we don't do with our bodies whatever we want is because they're not our bodies, that your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't pollute the temple. Uh, we don't destroy the temple. We don't defile the temple. But instead, we try to strengthen that temple, build that temple, Make that a place where God's presence can abide and to dwell. And then when you do, and when your body is viewed that way, now within the bounds of covenant marriage, you have so much freedom, and it's going to provide you a much more abundant sexual life than you ever can experience outside of it, where, uh, that, that, you know, it, we'll call it just a, a really tough neighborhood where you have uh, lack of commitment, sex being used for things it's not intended to do, being used in a fairly reckless manner where desires have no discipline upon them because um, why would they? I can do what I want. Doesn't bother me. Doesn't bother me. It shouldn't bother you. Who are you to tell me what to do with my body, right? And that becomes then the ethic of the culture. And then the results are all the things, all the vices that I showed you before. Now, that doesn't mean that... Um, you know, that, that just, well, okay, we can all just think that way and feel that way, and immediately everything will, will be fine. But the way that it's happened is that we've taken the results of our 
lack of discipline regarding our sexuality and then read the narrative backwards to redefine what Scripture actually says about our sexuality. So it's, I guess, an option for somebody to reject what Scripture says. But you don't get to rewrite Scripture to fit your current set of beliefs or to cherry-pick verses that deny the far broader weight and scope of what the Bible teaches about human sexuality. I mean, we're taught now, for instance, that, that we cannot control ourselves, that we are born the way we are, that one's sexual orientation is their identity. And to suggest otherwise is traditional or quaint at best, outright hate at worst. We're told by the culture around us that despite the overwhelming evidence of its failure as a way of life, to suggest that sex is intended exclusively between a man and a woman within marriage is narrow-minded, judgmental, perhaps for the unenlightened, and maybe even hateful. Now, never mind that over the centuries, millions have lived out a celibate lifestyle altogether, or that billions have married and channeled their sexual desires exclusively toward their spouses over a lifetime. Okay, forget that. Let's just pretend none of that happened. That's what we do, right, in culture. Because you can't control yourself. You're a helpless victim of the way that you desire things. We are able to discipline our desires all the time, and we do all the time. You've been on a diet? Hey, there's one person. All right. <laughs> Yeah, right? You say, no. You ever said, no, sorry, I don't drink. Um, you know what? I don't drink coffee. I don't eat sushi. Uh, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not going to wear that. No, I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to spend that. You do it dozens of times a day. You deny doing what you want to do. No, I'm not going to park there. There's a sign that says I'll get towed, so no, I'm not going to do that. Um, no, I'm not going to, right? But then we, we go ahead and we say, no, and, and nor do we then say, because of this thing that I want to do, because I want to do it so bad, that I, that's my identity. I, I, no, nobody, nobody, nobody says that me wanting to eat nachos is my identity. Now, is it hard for me to resist? Absolutely. You put nachos in front of me, I'm pretty much dead if I'm on a diet. So I just don't go to places that serve nachos, all right? And I don't go to people's houses who are having nachos, right? Super Bowl parties are a struggle for me in that regard, right? But, but it's about desire at its core. And what the Scriptures teach is that not only is your body not your own, your desires can be shaped by the Spirit of God, which is greater than the desires of the flesh. Now, the desires of the flesh is no joke. They are no joke, but they are weaker than the reign of the Spirit of God in your life. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, run from sexual sin. Does that mean play around with it? Does that mean you're helpless? No, it says run away from it. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. 
It's a way of saying you're hurting yourself when you do it. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to God. And then if you're married, 1 Corinthians 7, the chapter after this, he'll say your body then belongs to your spouse. So you might even be third place if you're a married Christian. And he'll explain, that's another sermon, but in 1 Corinthians 7, he explains why and under what circumstances we're supposed to do that. And the idea is so we don't weaponize sex against each other in marriage and cause thus a whole series of dysfunction in your marriage and, uh, and cause potentially your spouse set them up for, for, for sin. Okay? Uh, there are couples that I know for a fact have not... I don't, I'm not saying right now in this church, but that I have had um, in the churches I've been in, who have not been sexually intimate with each other in decades. I did not exaggerate that. Decades. Now, you can tell me that that is fine or normal, but that seems to defy what, what certainly what Scripture says, and in most of those cases, there is adultery on the side. Okay, And it is a way, I think Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 would say, you don't do that. What you do instead is you get to the underlying issues of things that are causing you to want to weaponize it against each other. Okay, We do not need to buy into the false assumptions of our society. We do not need to take the belief on that we can't control our sexual desires and that our bodies are ours to decide what we do with as we please. Now, that isn't... Um, uh, I mean, it's something that we certainly get on contemporary television and media, et cetera, et cetera. But this is old, okay? Let me take you back to a Greek comedy called Lysistrata. I read this my freshman year at a Christian college. Lysistrata is a little play, a little tiny book. You can read it over dinner. Um, and it's a, by Aristophanes. And uh, this is, is taught by, I would say, half, half the liberal arts colleges in the country would, would assign this as curriculum. Uh, it's, a, it's one in which the women are together drinking wine. Uh, you know, modern-day uh, book club. All right? They're sitting there drinking their wine, doing their thing. And they're so tired of their husbands going to war with each other, so they get together and they say, you know what? We're just not going to have sex with them until they end this war. Can we bond together in the sisterhood here and say, we're not going to do that, and so, you know, they'll have to stop fighting the war? And so they get together, they kind of, I don't know, uh, put their hands in the middle and do a cheer, off they go, and so they freeze their husbands out. And yes, the war ends. That's the punchline. All right, so entertaining, yes. It's a comedy, fine. Um, but it's also taught, and in the, in the narrative of it suggests that men are animals without any ability to control their desires. Right? So that narrative then becomes something that gets repeated over and 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 over. And then eventually, we end up in a spot where we go, why can't men control their desires? Well, I thought, we, I thought they couldn't. Of course they can. They must. And if you're a Christian man or woman, sisters, if you wanted a graph, if I were to pull up a graph, 
and show you the rise where pornography and its use is skyrocketing the fastest. It's by far among the sisters. It's going like that. The dudes is kind of flat because they're already at like 92%. The sisters, though, used to be down at like 5 10%. Now they're at like 45%. They're going... Whew. So it's for everybody, y'all. This is an issue for everybody. We can and we must control our desires through the power of God's Spirit that provides us self-control. I don't want to trivialize this for single people as a, as a married person. Uh, it is easier to fast if you know that you're going to eat again at some point. <laughs> but if, if you're a, a single person out there, I think sometimes it can, be, it can feel like, oh, yeah, that's easy for you to say. And it's like, well, no, it's not easy for me to say. It's hard for me to do it as well. But it's doable by the power of the reign of God. It is hard to grow up as a young single person in this culture and to remain sexually pure. Brutally hard. Much harder than it was when I was, when I was young, I would say. Because you have every other wind blowing against you into your face. Every single one. But if we are willing to obey God, then there's something greater that awaits. And it's not just to withhold, withhold, withhold. There's the other side, the dominant biblical narrative, which is one of what you would call engagement. To actually have sex in a particular way. So listen to um, Proverbs 15. This is our Proverbs 5, 15 to 23. This is eight verses. Um, one I'm quite sure you haven't heard very often in church. Um, uh, I don't have it for you, so listen to it. <laughs> Here's where we go. Uh, do you have it up there? I think it might be back a couple of slides. You have it? No? Okay, let me read it to you. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourself. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breasts of a promiscuous woman? For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. That's Proverbs 15, or 5, 15 to 23. He's saying rejoice in the sexual side of your marriage. Rejoice in your wife. People who go about being led by their desires end up, he, the image that's used is of somebody who's kind of caught in a snare and arrows are just being fired at them and they're helpless and they die. So he's saying, don't just withhold. You need to dive in fully to the sexual experience within your own marriage. See, I told you you weren't going to hear this very often in church. But this is, he says, be intoxicated, okay, captivated by your wife or husband. Song of Solomon chapter 7. If that wasn't awkward enough, wait, wait till this one. Two lovers flatter each other, okay, so at the beginning of chapter 7, the man starts at the woman's feet and flatters her all the way up till he reaches the top of her head. And he goes body part by body part all the way up. Now, 
For those of you, I'm not saying that you can't draw some analogy between Christ and the church with the Song of Solomon. I'm just saying there is no question that that was not why that book was written. That book was an erotic poem written to demonstrate that when two people fall in love and are, are honoring God with their sexuality, this is what it looks like. Okay? So here's a clip. This is Song of Solomon 7, 6 to 13. We do have this one. Oh, how beautiful you are. How pleasing, my love. How full of delights. You are slender like a palm tree. Your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. You see what he's saying there? (laughs) May your breasts be like grape clusters and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be exciting as the best wine. Yes, wine that goes down smoothly for my lover, flowing gently over the lips and teeth. I am my lover, and he claims me as his own. They've changed persons here, okay? And he claims me as his own. Come, my love, let us go out to the fields and spend the night among the wildflowers. Let us get up early and go to the vineyards to see if the grapevines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates have bloomed. Then I will give you my love. And there the mandrakes give off their fragrance and the finest fruits are at our door. New delights as well as old, which I have saved for you, my lover. Okay. So there you go. Another awkward text from the Bible, but it's only awkward because we never read it. All right? That's why it's awkward. And because somewhere in the back of our mind, we're told that sex and church don't go together. They got to go together. If we're going to honor God with our desires, they have to go together more often. Right? So um, what ends up happening is both with finance and with sex, we've kind of put crime tape around that area and said, no one goes in here, all right? And because of that, Satan just has a field day with people because the church is not willing to simply say, thus saith the Lord, and read the text out loud in church even occasionally and say, listen, guys, uh, God created this, yes, for procreation, but he could have, again, he could have said blink twice. He could have said, sit down and light a candle, and out comes a baby, Right? He could have been a whole bunch, but he did it for our enjoyment. And he did it as a way, if you read the broader arc of Scripture, if you take all the sum total of everything that God says, to help keep marriages strong. Strong. Having sex outside your marriage makes your marriage gone, usually. Okay, so... What God is trying to do is to say, if you're, if you're doing it in this way, it will bless your marriage. It will hold you together sometimes when, 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 when you guys can't talk to each other. You can still do that and enjoy yourselves, and it brings you back together again, and you forget why you were mad with each other. On the other hand, if you decide that you're not going to do it, or you're going to create some sort of cold war in your bedroom, well... That's going to have some pretty profound implications that go across the board. So he's saying to us through texts like the Song of Solomon, like Proverbs chapter 5, he's like, look, there's a time to 
to abstain, and what I mean by that is not necessarily from your spouse, although that's allowed for in 1 Corinthians 7 by mutual consent for prayer, etc., etc. It means to abstain from your desires that go beyond what God has intended. And then within that, to go ahead and eat. So it's always that, that temptation, right? The Garden of Eden, where he's like, hey, eat anything you want in the garden except that one. And we see that as a massive restriction. And God is saying to us, now, anywhere in here, within that bounds of marriage, one man, one woman, then go and, and enjoy what God has prepared for you. I think we need to start actually looking at our sexuality as a part of our discipleship. Not our identity, our discipleship. Without making sex more important than it is. Christ, not our bodies, our kids, or even our marriage, are the foundation. He's the foundation of our life and everything that we do. And he teaches us to desire rightly. Remember, when we were created, we were created naked and unashamed. Adam and Eve, naked, unashamed, be fruitful, multiply. Okay? When two people in marriage come together, it's a bit of a restoration of what was broken at the fall. When two people come together outside of that marriage, it's an expression of the fall. Okay? Now, for those of you, and I'm, I'm pretty much out of time, but I'm going to rattle through a few things here real quick just for um, if you're struggling in this particular area, first of all, let me tell you, you're now by yourself. Um, I'm not clairvoyant. I don't know the hearts of everybody in the room, but I, can, I would be willing to bet that half the people in this room are struggling rather mightily with something that I've listed today. Um, so let me just give you a few uh, quick things. First of all, if you're involved in sexual sin, repent of it today. And I don't mean at 5 o'clock today. I mean like in a second when we, when we take communion. Do it right then. If there's a phone call you need to make, make it. If there's a letter you need to write, write it. A DM you need to send, send it. And then hit delete on the account. Any of that stuff, okay? Just repent of it, and then realize there are issues underneath it, underlying issues, and then seek those out and deal with them. Uh, I have watched men who were absolute slaves to sexual addiction uh, and who were um, serial adulterers for most of their married life go through a brutal transformation, but it did save their marriage, and those men were so thoroughly transformed, they ended up becoming leaders uh, in men's ministries and stuff like that later and helping others find their way out of captivity at the same time. So God is not done with you. He is not done with you. Okay? Know that grace is available. That's the gospel, right? That, that, that you can turn from your sin and, and, and be forgiven and redeemed by God. Um, you know, you, 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 I can't guarantee that from whoever has been hurt, but God will take you back and accept you if you repent. Work hard to purify your thought world. I remember several years ago, it was the, it was the Super Bowl party where Beyonce was doing the, the halftime show. And I was sitting there, and I got a DM from a, a pastor friend of mine. It was one of these that was, it was on this massive pastor list with like thousands of pastors on it. And he said, here's the tweet. He goes, brothers, it is safe to say this halftime show will not be good for our sanctification. Choose wisely. And I go, you know what? 
I bet four or 5,000 pastors probably, probably just decided not to watch it that, at that moment. But how can they? They're slaves to their desires. You can't expect them not to. Of course you can. Of course you can. Um, for women, it's often TV shows masquerade, masquerading as TV shows. It's really more of a soft pornography. You know the shows I'm talking about. I won't list them all for you here. Same thing. Sometimes it's uh, putting yourself around people who, who, who are not committed to the same things as you, and you inhale their secondhand smoke so strongly that it gets you sick too. Spend some time purifying your thought world. Start there. Martin Luther, our good friend who did us a solid, he also said this, you cannot keep a bird from flying over your head, but you can keep it from building a nest in your hair. Okay? So um, that's sound advice for men and women alike. If you are married and allow sexual thoughts about somebody other than the one you're in marital covenant with, you are feeding desires you don't want to feed. And you are spending sexual energy and intimacy on somebody other that was meant for your spouse. And that will hurt sex inside your marriage and will fan into flames those desires that you uh, do not. Now, on the engagement side of the equation, believe that God wants you to enjoy the blessings of sex. Seek to enjoy your spouse. Don't withhold. Get to the underlying issues. Meaning, it's not designed to be a weapon in the bedroom. It's not designed to help further cold wars. Get to the underlying issues and deal with them. And then work proactively on cultivating your sex life. So when, in Proverbs 5, which we didn't have, but I'm going to make sure the next service has it. Uh, That's my fault. Um, You know, when he says, let your fountain be blessed, rejoice in the wife of your youth, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. That's a call to, to action, if you will. <laughs> all right. And so we're supposed to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word, right? So the idea is that you, you throw yourself fully into uh, what God has granted to you as an act of his grace for you. Uh, in just a moment, I'm going to offer a prayer for the sexuality of our church. I know that sounds like a weird, really weird, creepy prayer, but really it's a prayer of holiness and sanctification. Okay, that God bring understanding of your will. God bring repentance and grace for restoration. God bring power to overcome and enjoy. God sanctify and make your people holy. These are the prayers of people who take sex seriously as God intended and are prepared to enjoy the blessings thereof. All right, I got to stop. Let's take communion together, shall we? And I'll pray that particular prayer over us. And those of you who came in, you should have gotten a little bag with the elements inside. Um, And as we do this, again, uh, let me encourage you. To get right with the Lord today. If, if you, by the way, if you didn't get communion supplies and you'd like some, just put your hand in the air. We got some ushers that have some in there. Um, use this as an opportunity to think about where you are in your walk with the Lord, where your thought world's at, where your, uh, and, and if you're married, where your marital relationship is at. Uh, where there needs to be repentance, repent and accept the grace of God and the restoration that he provides. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, 
Now, there's so much to be said here. Um, now, Father, for the times that we've taken something that you intended for good and turned it into something to be used for, for evil, Father, we repent. And Father, we're, we trust your grace and we trust the power of the Spirit to not only take us through forgiveness, but also, Father, to, to, to create a heart in us that is pure enough, strong enough to transform our desires into something that resembles the heart and the mind of Christ. Father, I pray for restoration for what is broken. If there are broken relationships in this room, we know that you are the healer. And so, Lord, I pray that you begin the process of healing those relationships through that path of repentance. And Father, I ask that you bring power that only the Spirit can provide, something that strong, Lord, to over, help people overcome that which enslaves them. And Father, bring the power of the Holy Spirit to bear on the marriages of our church to keep them strong and healthy and vibrant and something, Father, that we enjoy as you intended. We pray this now in Jesus, the one who we remember now. Bread and cup, we pray this in his name, amen.